Welcome back to Canberra Conversations with your host Colin Campbell and today is episode 168 of the podcast and I'm delighted to be joined in conversation by Dr. Sarah Vora, the Mind Medic. Dr. Sarah is a consultant psychiatrist who also creates content online as the Mind Medic as well as working with global brands to help them create impactful mental health and well-being campaigns for their audience by sharing her expert advice. You'll be glad to know before I describe what I learned in this episode and what you can expect to learn that I was not as bunged up as I sound right now when we recorded this one earlier this week i'm glad to say so please bear with my nasal tones for the next 90 seconds or so during the episode you can expect to learn what drove sarah to start the mind medic and the common myths that we see about mental health online that she has worked to address the actions you can take to reclaim your mental health how the pandemic and the cost of living crisis has impacted the population's well-being as a whole and some of the habits you can implement to optimize how you feel and think Sarah focuses on a proactive approach and that is one of the reasons I was so compelled to have this conversation with her so you can expect to hear about how as an expiring high performer you can manage worry, your to-do list and even how to support and have conversations with those around you to make sure that their well-being is optimized as well. Lastly, I appreciated Sarah's ability and willingness to share how she manages her own well-being as a professional and something that it takes on board and is exposed to a lot of high volume of emotional strain and stress through supporting her patients. Today's podcast is sponsored and supported by Vibe. Vibe is an international nutrition company with operations in Australia, New Zealand, the UK and the Netherlands. Vibe's mission is to provide world-class nutritional products that are both convenient and affordable while also giving back to disadvantaged communities. Many of you will have seen me share me having my Vibe meal shake on my Instagram story when I'm having a quick and easy breakfast in the morning before I'm starting work on my laptop and their cornerstone product is the nutritionally complete meal shake providing 29 grams of protein, 26 vitamins and minerals, complex carbs, essential fats and added premium ingredients, importantly probiotics and nootropics. During the conversation with Sarah, we speak about physical health and how that transfers over to mental health. And one of the key areas I look after myself is the food that I put inside my body. And when it has added nootropics and probiotics, it's healing both my gut and my brain. And I think when it comes to being a busy, hyper-driven individual trying to manage the podcast and grow my corporate career and and look after my, my, my body, my physique as well, you cannot sacrifice the quality of your nutrition. Invite provides me with all the different nutrients I need to set me up for my day and keep me full until lunchtime. And from as little as £1.50 per meal, it's a little bit of a no-brainer to give them a try. The link will be in the show notes and you can use the code CAMBRO for 15% off. And they deliver in the UK and a number of other areas I named. So Australia, New Zealand and the Netherlands now as well. A massive thank you for the continued support of the podcast. The The new year has started so, so strongly and that cannot keep happening unless people like you are leaving ratings on Spotify or Apple if you're listening on there or copying and pasting and sharing the link with a friend who might benefit from the conversation. I know I've certainly benefited from talking to Dr. Sarah and I'm sure you have some friends that would as well. So please do pass on the podcast and share in the conversation. The music's going to play and you're going to hear it from the very wise and lovely to speak to Dr. Sarah Vora. Sarah, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Colin. Appreciate it. It's great to chat to you this morning and you're known online as the Mind Medic and I'd love to understand what that means as well as all the other things that you do alongside that. So first and foremost, I'm a consultant psychiatrist. So I'm a medical doctor and then I've subspecialized in psychiatry. And the reason the Mind Medic came about was six years ago, I joined Instagram and I was getting really, really frustrated with the misinformation really online when it came to mental health. And as a professional, as a doctor, I felt a real sense of responsibility of viewing this content and not necessarily putting out a counter. Um, So my husband kind of got a fire in my belly and said, well, if you've got an issue with what's out there, why don't you start creating content that actually you want people to see? So that's how it came about. I think it was on Boxing Day. So I was feeling particularly sort of glum. It's sort of the Christmas period was over and it's that sort of Twixmas between Christmas and New Year. And so I just started sharing messages online and sort of daily mental well-being tips, because I think there can be a misconception that as a medic, that all we do is prescribe. And absolutely, there is a role for medication for those people that struggle with their mental health. But alongside that has to be the other stuff. It has to be the talking therapies. It has to be 
the stuff that we know is going to be helpful for you alongside the medication. So kind of looking at things like your sleep, thinking about your daily activity, um, because the medication is only one piece of that jigsaw. You are right. The term medic straight away, there's a there's a reaction and an association with medication, medicating. And one of the reasons I was so keen for us to have this conversation is that language that you use around a proactive approach at all, at all times to try and empower yourself to to manage the situation that you're you're presented with. But you said that you were seeing misinformation online. What were some of the big things that were coming up where you were just like, oh, I don't want to see that? So I think it was more around kind of oversimplifying mental health and also the idea because I think often we can use the word say depression to describe how we might be feeling in a given moment but actually depression is a clinical disorder um, and I think it was just kind of the, the lack of nuance around certain words and actually looking at the people that were sharing the messages there was never kind of a sense of do they practice this day in day out there's sort of a sense of credibility behind their message and I think absolutely there is a role for anecdotal um, evidence so people sharing their personal accounts you know I love people like Matt Haig, Bryony Gordon, Fergus you know people that share honestly um, their struggles with their mental health and how they overcame them because I think that can be incredibly empowering for those individuals who are struggling to kind of cling on to some hope that actually someone has been in the same position that they've been in and that things get better. But I think where it can run into muddy waters is where people are looking at certain individuals that are sharing their mental health journey online and thinking it's like for like, that whatever worked for that individual will work for them. And they almost take advice to the letter um, rather than actually thinking about what resource they have more locally to be able to make sure that the advice that they take is bespoke to them. And I think that's really, really key and really, really important because I don't like this idea of people kind of clinging on to advice and thinking, well, it's worked for them. Why is it not working for them? Because that just then feeds into this idea of feeling quite hopeless and it's not going to work and maybe I'm going to be stuck like this forever. So I think I can't say enough. Those stories are absolutely helpful for providing hope those sets, you know, in terms of sharing kind of anecdotal evidence of what's worked. But if you are in a really dark place, I can't stress enough how important it is to make sure you're getting professional support local to you as well. I'm completely on board with that. And there's the, the whole phrase that um, facts tell, stories sell. So while you can produce this factual information, it's helpful to bring it to life with anecdotes and stories and people that people are personally connected with. But combining the, the two is where probably the sweet spot lies, where people can actually maybe get a grasp of little things they can do when things aren't that serious but then of course as things are progressing making sure you're aware that I can't just be going off the back of some anecdotal um, advice I'm, I'm seeing online and, and a lot of the time online we need to take with a pinch of salt what we see because things are either heavily filtered or they're geared towards the top of a funnel for some sort of sales um, sales tool that, that people are being pushed towards and I wouldn't be a, a, a podcast without mentioning a lot of people have been talking about the liver king in, in, in recent weeks and months who was a, a very large fitness influencer who was promoting like an, an ancestral lifestyle and a number of tenants that people were to get back to and some of those things were absolutely probably helpful for people when it came to their, their mindset and their health and their body and, and how they got on but of course a lot of it was underpinned by the fact that he'd been using a, a considerable amount of anabolic steroids to achieve the physique that he had and you end up in a situation where well, if you miss that part of the recipe, do you understand that that plays a big role? Because interestingly enough, I know a number of people I've spoken to who use testosterone replacement therapy as a form of supporting their mental health as well. And that's 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 a, that's clinically diagnosed rather than just somebody deciding to to take large amounts of performance enhancing drugs. And I think, you know, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of kind of thinking about the fact that social media is a highlights reel. And we hear that term sort of banded about quite a lot, that we only get a snippet of a story and I think social media for what it is a great place for connection, you know, we've connected over social media. I think there's a lot of noise on social media. And I think if you're, if you're someone that's struggling with your mental health, you're already by default in a very vulnerable position. So then to go online and to try and sift out kind of the, the fact from fiction and to try to kind of look at what advice will serve you and what won't is just going to, you know, inflame that vulnerability that you feel. Um, so I think it, it's just being mindful when you are on social media that 
as you've said, are people trying to sell you something? Is there a case of like, this is the advice that I'm giving, but if you want to get a year's subscription to whatever, then you need to pay X amount. And I think, you know, for all uh, mental health services do get a lot of press, you know, there are long wait times. I think that shouldn't be a barrier for you accessing support because that varies from region to region. So it's really important that if you are in a in a dark space and you are struggling, it's to reach out to, you know, the professional support that's available to you locally and, and see what's available. In the last six years that you've been creating content on Instagram, I think there has definitely been an increase across the board in people talking about mental health, like the in the in the corporate world where 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 I have my day job, the conversation has increased massively since I first graduated from university in 2014. It was never really spoken about, and that was what eight eight nine years ago. So there's been a big big shift in 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 that in that regard. And one of the phrases that you consistently use online, but also in your books, is reclaiming your mental health. Why do you think there's needed to be a conversation around that? Like, what has led to this point where I think, by all intents and regards, we can probably say that mental health is probably worse or at least more talked about than it was previously? I think that's okay. I think it's always been there. But I think what we've noticed over the last few years is there's an increase in confidence in being able to talk about it and recognise it. And I think one of the things that I'm really keen to promote is making sure that we take a proactive approach to mental health rather than a reactive. Because I think all too often we can wait till things reach a breaking point before we decide that we need to intervene and do something about it. And I know it's really, really cliche, but if we think about our physical health, the things that we do to improve our physical health, we don't necessarily wait until something happens before we, you know, eat well, we move, we exercise, we make sure we're getting our, you know, however many nights, um, hours um, worth of sleep. I think we need to be treating mental health in much the same way that rather than waiting for something to happen, that we should be putting into practice those daily things that we know are going to put us in a better position. It's not to say that it's going to make us immune to ever struggling with our mental health, but it's certainly going to put us in a better position to manage those difficult obstacles as and when they come. Yeah, of course. And I wonder, I think the conversation's definitely increased in volume and people are more open about it. But do you think that as a as a society, where our mental health sits in terms of number of uh, people that you think are maybe at the at the more challenging end of it, do you think that's increased? I mean, I, we always have this quote around kind of one in four of us will struggle with our mental health at any one point. But I suspect that it's probably higher because I think that there is still a stigma attached to um, talking about our mental health. Um, and I think you've mentioned kind of the corporate space. I think I, I have gone into corporate organisations and who have asked me to, you know, do a talk, do a workshop on mental well-being. I still feel we've got a long way to go to accept that that is a, a part and parcel of a day in, 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 the, in the life of a corporate organisation, because I think all too often it's a tick box exercise. It's to say, well, actually, yeah, we are managing our employees' mental health because we got someone in to talk for an hour about this topic. I don't think that's good enough. I think, you know, if we think about the the role that mental health has to play in our day-to-day -day lives, you know, it's, it's pivotal in terms of our level of functioning, our ability to concentrate, our mood, our connections. And for a lot of us, work forms a big part of our day-to-day -day life. And actually, if you are someone that is struggling, but you're in a space where actually it's not necessarily encouraged that you talk about your mental health, unless it is mental health week or unless someone has brought in a speaker outside to talk about it, then chances are that you're going to plod on through. And actually, then you might reach a, bur a burnout and then you may go off sick. So I think, again, we've got a long way to go in terms of having these conversations more so in the corporate space, having a consistency in what's offered in the corporate space, such that actually you can, you know, be in a position where you are supported alongside your day-to-day -day job. Because I think, again, unfortunately for a lot of people that I speak to um, at work, in, in workplaces, they feel that they're just a number, that actually if they go off sick, that's okay, because we're going to get someone else to step into your role and, and carry out your work, rather than do we put the resources in place now to avoid, you know, members of staff going off sick um, as a result of burnout.
that's such an important point that it's not just a tick box exercise to to do that and we have the term when it comes to climate greenwashing but i suspect there's probably a term that's relevant to mental health when it comes to organizations just think yeah we well we had that workshop didn't we when that lady came in and, and spoke to you for an hour as you say like out of a out of a out of a, out of a calendar year that is such a tiny percentage of the of the conversation um i i i, I do find that interesting and and while as you say work forms such a huge part a lot of the habits that are around our working environment are all related to mental health as well because there's a lot of talk of like presenteeism at the moment particularly post-pandemic where people are maybe not signed off sick but they are just turning up to work and they could be uh, for lack of a better term just an empty vessel at that point in time they're just they're just going through the motions and feeling completely um disassociated with what they're doing and i think that can only be maybe something that manifests as as, as really poor mental health down the line as well yeah and i think that was made worse from my perspective during the pandemic because we were all online and actually there wasn't anything for us to be doing so when we were at work it was a case of we're at work we sign on you know when we barely got out of bed and we sign off you know 8 9 p.m at night and actually what we're finding is a lot of people were extending their work um hours and there was a real blur between our work and our downtime as a result of that um and i think that has continued post-pandemic in the sense that now we've got this hybrid way of working even if we are going into the office to work and we are a bum on the seat actually that work is continuing in our you know sort of morning and evening commutes and um, almost certainly continuing into the evening and and i speak from personal experience that often i do struggle to switch off because you know whilst this kind of hybrid way of working that has been sort of okayed post-pandemic actually are we really giving people opportunity to switch off and to utilize that downtime because we know that actually that rest and recovery is absolutely crucial to ensure our performance and functioning the following day the lines are so so blurred and i was quite fortunate when my first job after university for four and a half years was a remote role so i was working from home and then traveling out across the uk to see different clients but there were regularly weeks where i was at home for four or five days sometimes and at that point in time, I always, always had something to break the day at the end, so whether that was closing the laptop and going to the gym, going for a walk, going to the golf course, going to a football match. I always had to have something. And when the the biggest challenge I found was when everything was closed during the pandemic, because there wasn't a period where you could say, right, the laptop's closed, I'm going to go and do this. It was, right, the laptop's closed, I'm going to work out in my living room next to next to where my, next to where my laptop sits. Yeah. So that was the most difficult thing. But I think when I look at when I'm performing at my best in my work and in all the other things that I, I like to try and do on the side, it's when I've got a hard stop at either 5 or 5.30, whatever it is, and I completely don't I turn off notifications on my on my on my work on my work phone after that time I don't check work email I don't log back on to try and do something or in the case where I'm seriously stretched and I know I have to I will go and do something first and I'll serve myself and then I'll come back and I'll finish the piece of work so I'll, there's there's always got to be a break because I, I know that hour between five and six or six and seven I'm getting so much less done and I'm just putting a like more like stress or toll on myself Sarah in that regard yeah and I think often it can be overwhelming if we've got these long to-do lists and actually we almost feel that well, we've just got to plod on through and, and and you know get on with it but actually if we find that we're pushing on through when mentally we're not in a position to be able to access that work or to complete it what we're going to find is that we're going to be procrastinating it's going to take us longer to complete it and that's going to exacerbate that feeling of stress and overwhelm so you're far better if you're getting into a position where you are struggling to concentrate chances are that you've probably not had a break for some time it's taking a moment pressing pause pushing the laptop um, cover down taking yourself outside if, if you're able to and just having that 10 15 minute reset before you return because i think there can be a, a lot of guilt attached to taking time out for ourselves particularly in the workplace and again i'm not kind of suggesting for a moment that we go and sort of doss off work and and, and not actually um, take the working day seriously but actually everyone's got opportunity in that working day to take 10 or 15 minutes avoid the temptation to have lunch at your desk you know if you're going to have lunch making sure that it's separate from your workspace and making those clear distinctions and i think the word boundaries really is key 
and and not thinking just because you're taking that 10 or 15 minutes that you're going to be losing out on potential work time because chances are that actually what you'll end up doing is procrastinating this is so true I've had this conversation a few times now and it, it sometimes seems a little bit ranty but if I wake up the next day and I see I've had emails from colleagues or clients at like 10 11 o'clock at night I genuinely wonder what were you doing between nine and five that meant that you procrastinated or didn't f- didn't manage to get on top of this or that it couldn't wait till tomorrow when your mind was maybe fresher maybe to better articulate yourself better explain yourself to put your, to maybe just do a better quality of job rather than rushing through it and i love the conversation around taking 10 15 minutes away because it's almost like you're recharging your batteries and you're coming back with a better opportunity and you spoke about to-do lists and it's funny I always have a few different questions I want to ask guests and when I was reading your book you did speak about to-do lists and overwhelm and for the type of people that listen to a self-development podcast on a weekly basis we probably all have big to-do lists aspirational goals things that we want to get done and there is a definite worry or concern that that can be overwhelming how do you suggest that we manage that? So I think um, one of the things that I talk about quite a lot and and I have talked about spoken about really on my Instagram is sort of how you prioritize your to-do list um and I I use sort of one or two methods so first and foremost I think about kind of what is important from a personal perspective what's important from a social perspective and what's important from a working perspective so it depends on when it might suit you to do this it might be on an evening um, maybe a Sunday evening when you kind of look ahead at your week and kind of jot down everything that you've got to do for that for that week and, and subdivide it, I find it helpful into sort of personal work and social and think about what is absolutely essential that I have to do. Um, and what do I have to do this week? What's important kind of, you know, a couple of weeks down the line and what's important in terms of my future? And it may be that, you know, kind of going on that social occasion, you know, it's not something that you put at the top list of your priorities because actually it's going to dip into your savings and you're actually going to be saving for a house. So kind of laying out kind of what your priorities are in the short term, but also in the long term can be really helpful to help you evaluate kind of opportunities as and when they come. Because I think, again, and I'm going to reference pandemic again, post-pandemic, we suddenly had this influx of kind of, sort of social invites personal commitments that we had or working commitments and we almost became yes people that actually now there's no excuse you know we can't say well actually you know we're not allowed to mix or um there's certain rules about mixing with a certain number of people now people are kind of looking at well what's your excuse you know because th- there aren't any kind of boundaries in place um so i think you run the risk of kind of ending up saying yes to everything that that comes along So I think any proposition or any request that's made of you, bring it back to those kind of core reasons that are important. So your personal, your social and your work and think, does saying yes to this opportunity bring me closer to any of these three things that are important to me? So as an example, someone might be stuck in a job that they don't particularly like, but actually saying yes to that overtime will mean that it will allow them to save more money for that house deposit. So again, it's kind of allows you to be really clear about the things that you're saying yes to and, and why you hold so much importance, um, for why they hold so much importance for you. And equally, if there's things that don't serve you, bring it back to that core reason, thinking, well, actually saying yes to this is not going to, you know, provide me an opportunity in, in these three areas. I really like that you bring up the the overtime example, because I think when people are clear on their core purpose and they've got large levels of self-awareness you can maybe do the thing that doesn't really align with you in in the immediate moment but you can understand the greater goal and what it's leading towards so like sometimes there's certain things when it comes to like an exercise goal that you've got or a physique goal that you've got you're gonna have to do it to achieve that and it might be a bit unpleasant in the moment but you understand the why behind it it might be that maybe you're not having the biscuit with your with your tea this week because you you have set a goal that you want to lose x amount of weight but of course it, it would be much more gratifying and pleasurable to do that just like it would be more pleasurable maybe to turn down the overtime and not spend that time doing something that you don't absolutely love but if you're clear on your why that's massively important and the second thing Sarah and I'm really glad that you you, you practice what you what you preach in this regard saying no is vitally important so when we first got connected it was was October time and you just physically couldn't fit this in within your diary and I had tremendous respect that you just said Colin I need to stay in line with 
what what I tell people to yeah. do and I'm going to say no to this at this point <laughs> can you reach back out at this date and we'll have the conversation I'm up for the conversation but it just cannot fit in and equally I know that if I want to have a great conversation with a guest and I want it to serve the audience and bring the full value that, that Dr. Sarah Vora has got, I want you in a p- position where this hour of your time is something you've been able to give and you haven't just been like, oh, right, I, I feel pressured. I need to just put this in with Colin and maybe you turn up and you don't bring your best self and then the people don't get the same level of value that they're going to get from this conversation because at this time of recording, you said, yeah, great, we can do it at this time. I'm free, I'm available, I'm, in, uh, uh, I'm, I'm ready to rumble. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that example up because one of the things, another tool that I use, and it's not, I can't claim this tool, but it's kind of the Eisenhower grid. So we think about kind of urgent, not urgent, important, not important. And actually kind of, I knew that this conversation was important, but I also knew that it wasn't urgent. So actually being able to say, look, I I really want this conversation with Colin to happen, but actually I've got things in my in my square which are urgent and incredibly important that I need to kind of sift through first once I clear that box then actually I can then go on to the stuff that's important but not as urgent I think it's so important to to realize that and if you communicate that in the right way most people shouldn't take offense and the kind of people that would take offense are not the kind of people that are going to serve your mental well-being in the future anyway so somebody threw their toys at the pram because you said no not now and I, I do I do see like and this is the whole online thing sometimes like you don't need to give a reason why you can't why you said no or something like that and sometimes I'm like yes there's certain things that you should just be allowed to say no to but sometimes it is just like ma- manners make the man is the phrase but we can apply that to to, to, to to both genders in that regard but I certainly think that you should be allowed to say no but sometimes just explaining what, where your position yeah. comes from and people can be more understanding of that so like you said earlier um if going to that social occasion fiscally means that you're not going to be as working towards the the saving for the the house deposit that you want then you should be able to say to your friends oh a little bit tight at the moment I'm, I'm actually gonna not be able to manage this because we've got the big goal of the house and they might be like in the moment they'll be a bit annoyed but then they'll go on the night out anyway and enjoy themselves and then you can go on the next one if you've planned in advance and it works within your budget so i, I do think a level of explanation can be helpful absolutely i think if anything it just affirms kind of your reason for saying no in the first place and it kind of gives you that clarity of purpose really which I think can be really important. I'm interested in what you would define good mental health as because I think there's always a conversation around this is what to happen this is what to do and what to prevent bad mental health but what does good mental health look like? So I think it can be different for everybody but I kind of think about mental health in the sense of kind of thinking about how you look after yourself personally, how you perform socially and your ability to kind of carry out your day-to-day work. Um, And also that sort of marriage really between your physical and your mental health being in in a good place as well. And because we know that poor physical health can impact our mental health as well. Um, And one of the exercises that I like to get people to do just to kind of get a better understanding of when they may be running into trouble with their own mental health is just think about a baseline day for you. What, what a, a day in your life typically looks like so you know I'm going to use an example of my long-suffering husband so you know my husband gets up normally around six-ish and he will if it's a a weekend day he will get up and do a workout if it's a work day he will get up he will um, get get our daughter up he will get her breakfast sorted he will then get showered get dressed for work his temperament is normally quite, you know, happy, you know, he's not, not normally an irritable person. And he goes, goes to work quite happily. Um, generally, no complaints at work. He's, he's mild mannered, polite, gets on with, with people, staff. Um, if I was noticing that actually, when I was waking up on the morning, he wasn't stirring, or actually, he was struggling to get our daughter's breakfast ready. And he was maybe avoiding that shower and just getting out the door without having any breakfast and was quite irritable in his manner. Immediately, kind of alarm bells going to be ringing because I know for certain that's a shift from his usual baseline. So it will raise questions that something's probably going on either with his mental health or physical health. Now, it may be that he's got a cold, in which case you would expect that at some point that's kind of going to resolve itself and you would see a shift back to his baseline. But if it's happening kind of a week, two weeks down the line, that's going to invite a conversation from myself to say, look, what's going on? You know, you're not getting out of bed. Our daughter's downstairs screaming that she's hungry and I'm trying to get sorted and and you're not able to to manage what you normally are able to manage. There's complaints from work because people are saying that you're irritable. And again, it kind of 
slowly builds up a picture of someone that is struggling. And I think it can be really helpful if you're in sort of the early stages of that to kind of think, okay, I'm noticing I'm not getting out of bed until this time. What's that about? Or I'm noticing that I'm lacking the motivation to be able to just do the simplest of tasks. So I think that can be really helpful to kind of almost frame conversations with people, whether it's people that you're close to or with a professional as well to say, look, I'm noticing that my motivation is rock bottom. I'm noticing that I, I'm struggling to do the basic of tasks. Um, so I, I suppose it gives you kind of a confidence in language of how things are affecting you on a real world level. I think being able to compare your baseline, as you said, with where you're at just now is very, very useful. Because like you say, there's some people that don't necessarily have a happy disposition at all times. But if that was to dip, then you're like, right, okay. Or if it was to if it was to rock it up the way you think, oh, right, what's what's going on in your life that, that's led to that? And you mentioned there that you're doing this from like an observational perspective of the people around you. Do you have any recommendations for how people can maybe check in with themselves to assess what like where their, where their baseline's at and where their current level is? So I think generally there's things that we can do and it references our earlier part of the conversation when we think about what we do to improve our physical health, kind of taking that proactive approach. So one of the things that I like to suggest that people do is is to look at their day and to ensure that they're optimising kind of every opportunity of their day. And we've already kind of touched on some of that around kind of breaks and making sure that you're not kind of solidly working and that you are taking time out to rest and recuperate. But I think one of the things that I like to think about is kind of the bookends of the day. So thinking about the time that we wake up and the, the moment we go to sleep and making sure that that time is protected. And again, I think we are, you know, slaves to our devices. Um, and I speak as personally, I am a slave to my device because my work and my social contacts rely on me utilizing a screen. But I think if we can protect kind of those bookends of the day, so the moment we wake up, I think all too often we utilize um, the phone to set our morning alarm. And if you're anything like me, if we do that, then we're then in, pulled in to see what else is on offer. So kind of checking messages that have come in overnight or checking that email that your colleague may have sent out of hours. I think if we can say, give ourselves, you know, half an hour minimum to make sure that, you know, in the morning we wake up and we do the things that we know that are going to make us better able to manage the day ahead. So making sure it's a screen-free zone. So that half an hour you might use to do a workout because you know that if you end up checking your device, checking your email, it creates a sense of urgency that means that you forego the things that you know will actually get you off on the right foot. So it's not to say that, you know, just because you do that morning workout, that you're not going to struggle with your mental health or struggle with things as the day progresses. But actually there's kind of a so there's a safety and a comfort in knowing, well, I've done the thing that I know that means I'm better able to manage it rather than you get to the end of the day and think, I can't be bothered to do that, that workout that I've cancelled in the morning because I'm too shattered. So I think kind of making sure you protect that morning, do the things. And it may be just having a leisurely breakfast. It may be, you know, being able to, to chat with your family member or go out for a walk. You know, it may not necessarily be exercise, but something that means that you're better able to manage the day ahead rather than you have your routine and the urgency of your morning routine dictated by what you see on screen. Absolutely. You can't pour from an empty cup. And what you're talking about there are all ways that you're filling up your cup before you start to serve others. And I'm completely on board with the the start of the day. And (laughs) I've heard you speak before about the, the whole getting a physical alarm clock, because like you say, our, our primate brains are still not built to deal with the fact that there's all these different notifications, potential dopamine spikes or potential stressful um, experiences that are that are going to be on this screen as soon as we open it. So yeah, we turn the alarm off at 6.30 or 7, whatever time it is. And then you swipe down and you see you've got 18, 18 WhatsApps in this group chat and 10 in another and you're wondering what on earth happened over, over overnight or you get a notification from the news to say something else happens or like you say, your colleagues emailed at 11 o'clock at night saying important before our morning meeting and you're thinking oh goodness me like there's so much going on but by serving yourself first that's massive and I think when I'm performing at my best I am almost intermittent fasting from my phone and that is that I put it away at nine o'clock at night and then when I wake up in the morning yes it, it like I use the alarm at the other side of the room it goes off but I pretty much have the podcast I want to listen to pre-downloaded mm. Now, there's there's benefits technology, but there's there's also downsides. But one of the benefits is you can put your AirPods in. And you say, "Hey Siri, play Modern Wisdom podcast," and it'll it'll it, it, it'll play the one you've downloaded. And you don't need to then go onto the app 
and get tempted by, oh, well, I'm on the podcast app or I'm on Spotify. I can maybe just click onto WhatsApp or Instagram or, or TikTok or whatever app is that it is that's grabbing your attention primarily. And at that point in time, I'm then putting something into my head that I've decided is going to be a good choice. And I've made that choice in advance rather than maybe in the, in the moment when you're thinking, right, okay, this is happening. I need to just put this on. And it gives me an opportunity to start my day in the best in the best possible headspace. Yeah. And that, and that sounds like a sort of an ideal morning routine. And that's something that's bespoke to you. You know, like some people will want to do the workout. Some people will just want to just a leisurely start and be able to sit and actually have the breakfast. And others will actually find comfort in being able to listen to something that will motivate them and set them up for the day. And I think if we think about kind of the other bookends, so the evening routine, and I know, again, I'm guilty of this, even as a professional. And, you know, just because I, I, I preach certain things doesn't mean that I don't fall foul of the, the stuff that we all end up doing. But making sure wherever possible, half an hour to an hour before bed, that we are switching off those devices. And if you're anything like my husband, you know, you, you end up being on your phone, maybe on your laptop, you're watching a box set in the background. And all that stimulation before bed, you know, kind of, our screens emit blue light and blue light blocks a really important hormone called melatonin and melatonin is absolutely crucial for triggering the pathways for sleep so if you're spending right up until the 11th hour glued to a device the chances are that you, your sleep is going to be re, re, you know relatively poor so it's just making sure that we're not saying no screens because that's not realistic in this society you know we all do rely on screens but it's coming back to your point around intermittent fasting, it's more kind of rationing when we utilize it um, and, and making sure that it doesn't consume every hour of our day. I completely agree. And I know from recently, I went on holiday to Dubai just before Christmas and I purposely didn't buy a data package when I was out there. So I was just using my phone when I was on the Wi-Fi and it was quite refreshing. But it meant that when I was back at my apartment, I was using it first thing in the morning before I went out and I was using it last thing at night before I went to sleep. And I'm normally so good at having it away. I'll I'll do a little bit of journaling. I'll read before bed, and I'll I'll kind of clear my head of and like maybe I'll do my to do list, my priorities, my time I time box as well. So I'll put in when it's going to happen, and it, I feel just super relaxed before I go to sleep. But on holiday, it, I just felt I wasn't resting because I was up and I was on the phone and I was I was on Instagram posting what I had to post before I knew I wouldn't have Wi-Fi for the day or what's happening because I knew I wouldn't have Wi-Fi in, in in five minutes time when I walked down the stairs so my habits in that regard got completely trashed and while of course it was only a two-week period in holiday and it, 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 it wasn't the end of the world by any means I could see how it would affect me being able to perform my best if I did that on a regular basis. Yeah. And it comes back to your earlier question about how can people check in with themselves? You know, you've done absolutely that, that, okay, my sleep's not as good as it usually is. I'm noticing this about myself. Oh, maybe it is the fact that I'm utilizing screens. At the, my attention the span, Sarah, was in the gutter, honestly. <laughs> but so again, you, that ability sort of to check in, to think about what's changed, and then to make sure that you implement kind of your usual routine to get yourself back to your usual baseline is, is you know, it's hugely insightful and, and really you know, it means that it, it sort of pays dividends um, in terms of your mental health. I think, you know, screens, we've spoken a lot about screens. Um, I've kind of hinted around kind of exercise. And I think for me personally, but also in terms of what I recommend people do is making sure you do some form of movement each day. We know that exercise is hugely important for improving our mood, reducing stress, and also helping with our sleep. So it's a good all-rounder. And it doesn't have to be a hit workout or something that you hate that you're going to dread. It can be as simple as just going outside and going for a walk for half an hour and um, something that's just going to get your heart racing a little bit and, and making sure it's something that you can commit to every day. Um, and I kind of reference the kind of the desk lunch, even if it means just moving away from your desk and just walking out to the local coffee shop with a colleague, you know, anything that's just going to get your heart rate moving is hugely important. And not only that thinking about kind of social connections because again i think this idea that we you know monday to friday we just work and we don't have time for kind of any downtime we know that and if anything the pandemic's taught us is how important social connection is we know and there is evidence to suggest that social connection can help particularly in times of stress it can help reduce the impact that that stress has has on us it can help us kind of get us into a better place that we can interpret that stress and put things into practice that mean that that stress doesn't affect us in the way that it would 
had we not had that social support. So again, if you're doing your kind of, if you're planning for the week on a Sunday afternoon, planning that social contact, again, it doesn't have to be a heavy night out. You know, it can be as simple as just going for a drink with a mate after work or booking to do a, a gym session together or grabbing a bite to eat but something that means that you're going to have that face-to-face connection and not having to wait for an occasion or not having to, you know, reach that burnout and then be in a position where you're reaching out to people when they've not got the best of you. So I think incorporating that into your week is hugely important as well. For sure. And when I'm thinking about having conversations with friends and social connection, and you were saying you might have noticed that your your husband is, is is maybe a little bit more down than normal, and you're not quite sure what's maybe going on there. I know you've got a tool when it comes to supporting others around us, and it's 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 the face fear tool. Can you talk us through how that works? Yeah. So the reason the face fear came about was just because I think there was a lot going on in the media at the time, kind of about talking to people about their mental health and, and and simply asking them how they are and I think all too often people will respond to that with I'm fine because it's almost kind of a, a stopper on the conversation and actually what I wanted to do is create a tool that meant that people had the confidence to kind of push past the I'm fine and to try and just just really eke out what's really going on for someone and not have the conversation just stop dead in its tracks so face fear is about having a face-to-face conversation um, and, and the reason I, I sort of say it has to be a face to face is because a lot of what someone gives you may not be in the verbal. It may be in the nonverbal and what you notice in terms of their behavior. So, you know, if you're speaking to someone on the phone, you're not necessarily going to see them pacing their foot up and down or kind of them being tearful, you know, I avoiding think, eye, con- eye contact absolutely. or or the fact that they've not showered or, you know, kind of an an odor about them when normally they're kind of immaculately turned out. So I think we can't, you know, sort of stress enough actually how important that face-to-face interaction is. Um, Being attentive, so A for attentive. So I think it can be tempting, particularly if you are worried about someone, to kind of launch in there with your own agenda of what you think is going on. And I think it's important to give them space to be able to share what's going on for them. Because for some people, it's not necessarily going to be spilling out straight away. It's probably going to take some time for them to be able to put into words how they're feeling. So kind of making sure you provide that listening ear. C is about remaining calm. So again, if you are really worried about someone, perhaps you've been kind of getting on at them saying, look, I'm really worried about you and, and they're not giving you anything. There may be a lot of emotions that that stirs up for you. It may be that you feel frustrated with them or maybe angry. And actually, if you kind of let that out, you don't necessarily convey to them that it's a safe space for them to be able to share whatever's going on for them. So it's not to say that you can't feel angry or you can't feel frustrated, but really trying to avoid in that moment, it's spilling out such that that person then doesn't feel that it's a safe space to be able to open up. E is about encouraging. So if you are met with the I'm fine and the shrugged shoulders, kind of encouraging them to kind of say, look, you know, I'm really worried about you. I've noticed this about you. And that's really where the fear aspect comes in, because if you just literally met with a blank face and I'm fine, a lot of people would move away from that conversation at that point. But the fear is about pushing through. So F is fact. So if we come back to the example I gave my husband, look, I've noticed that you're not getting out of bed until seven o'clock. I'm noticing that you're not even able to come downstairs and make our daughter our breakfast, her breakfast like you normally would. People at work are saying that you're really irritable. Those are facts. You know, those are me kind of presenting to him the things that have changed. Now, if I was to reel off to someone the things that I'd noticed about them, chances are that they might get a bit defensive and say, no, no, that is all in your head, what, what you're on about. So the E is explained. So that's the crucial bit about putting into context you're not getting out of bed till seven. Normally, you're the first out of bed at six. You're not getting our daughter's breakfast ready. Normally, you're the first down. It's out out there on the table ready for her for when she comes downstairs. So it's about conveying to that person, look, I've noticed this about you. And this is why it concerns me, because it's different from your usual baseline. And then the A and the R is about agreeing and action and reviewing. So it may be, like I said, that he's he's simply got a cold and he's just a bit run down, in which case I'd expect that, you know, in a few days time, in a week's time, that it will improve. So how about we agree in a few weeks, in a few days time, we check in and see how you're getting on. And if you're still struggling, then actually we need to have another conversation and think about what else might be going on for you. 
So it's making sure that that conversation doesn't end there, that we have a, an agreed check-in that means that in a few days' time, we are going to come back and we're going to check, actually, is your cold better? Are you getting out of bed now? Are you managing your daughter's breakfast? Are you less irritable at work? Okay, things have changed. So maybe it was just the cold. So I think it's more about giving people that structure and that confidence to, to maintain that conversation and to keep it going. I think, as you say, there's the opportunity for that to be confrontational at so many different points or to just stop if somebody stonewalls you. But having a toolkit and a set of questions or phrases and a, a framework to follow, it empowers people to maybe try and be as supportive as possible. While, of course, understanding that, yes, you might have to ask a little bit of a different question. You might have to rhyme off a few different things that are challenging, but of course, still being encouraging, being explore, sorry, explaining clearly why, why, why you're saying this and it comes from a place of care. And I think that's one of the reasons, again, why I was so keen to have this conversation because I think it's very easy for a glib marketing campaign to say, ask your mates how they are because and and but what comes after that because a lot of guys in particular will just say i'm all right mate how are you and it will just it's like it's literally like throwing a tennis ball off a wall it's going to come straight back to you yeah. and, and 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 it's going to be the same for you could be their closest friend of 10 15 years or you could be somebody they they went to school with 10 years ago and they would say the same response yeah i'm good mate how are you and and it's not it's not it's not enough if you know that somebody is potentially struggling you you need to go deeper than that and I guess the face fear tool is a, is a great way to do that absolutely and it also provides you sort of with a confidence in that if the stuff that you think might be going on for them you know kind of improves but yet their mood doesn't improve it gives you the confidence to say look how about we agree I'm going to come with you to the GP or I'm going to come with you to speak to this person because that's clearly bothering you it gives a transparency to the conversation rather than you kind of feel feeling in a position as a, as a mate or, uh, you know, as a employer, potentially, that you're just kind of observing someone's decline, but you've not got a role in being able to support them and getting out of that. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I was going to ask you about was obviously to do list, but alongside that, I took another note from your book around worrying. And again, I think that's something that a lot of people who aspire to be high performers will still have in terms of, I'm worrying about this task and this task that I've got to do, or I'm worrying about will I reach this particular milestone or this particular goal by this point? How do you recommend people manage that particular emotion? So I look at worry in two ways. So you've got your problem solving worries or you've got your might not worries. So if I use an example of a problem solving worry, so what one of my worries might have been, and prior to us recording is, what happens if I get loads of interruptions, lots of notifications that come through? And actually, rather than kind of ruminate on that being a possibility, actually what we ended up doing is problem solving and you walk me through a, a, you know, my computer that I've had for 10 years, but I still don't know how to utilize. But you've turned that worry that I had into a problem to solve, which is, well, if you click on your moon and you turn off your notifications, then that shouldn't bother you. So immediately that worry is resolved for me by simply turning it into a problem that I can solve. Now, a might not worry might be, I've got this conversation with Colin coming up and God, what happens if he thinks I'm a total idiot and that what I'm saying is not interesting and actually he decides that he's not gonna put the episode out live because it's not of any value to anyone. Can you see how that, that worry snowballs and, and almost runs away with me? But it might not even happen, you know? And actually, what can be really helpful is when you have a worry, to just subdivide it, decide, is that worry a, a problem? Sorry, sorry, is that worry something that I can turn into a problem that I can solve? Or is it a might not worry? So I can't do anything about the fact that you might not like this episode or people might not like what I've got to say. But actually something like the notifications, I can do something about and I can stop myself running away from it. So I always tell people to utilize the notes section of their phone just because it's an easy, they've got it to hand. So as worries come into your mind, ask yourself that question. Is this a worry that I can turn into a problem that I can solve? If so, solve the problem. If it's not read readily solvable, then it may be thinking about who, what you might need to help you solve that problem. And it may be something that you can't solve today, but certainly in a few days or weeks, you can solve it with the right resource. Now, if it's a might not worry, jot it down and just kind of carry on with what you were doing previously. If it keeps entering your mind, repeat the process, so keep jotting it down. 
And what you'll find is I tend to utilize what's called a worry curfew. So when I put my daughter to bed, between half seven and half eight, um, I will look through my phone, depending on how, how much worrying I've done, and look at my list. And so if I s s look at my top of my list, it's like Colin thinks that I've, nothing's interesting, blah, blah. I can reflect and think, well, actually, no, Colin said actually it was an interesting conversation. That didn't happen. So immediately I strike it off. Because I think the risk with these worries, allowing them to kind of infiltrate your mind and to run away with you, is it takes you away from the present moment. It takes me away from the ability to just enjoy this conversation for what it is. Whereas actually feeling empowered to be able to jot it down to say, this worry is not going to serve me at this moment in time, but I will come back to it, can be an incredibly helpful position to be in such that it doesn't impact your sort of present moment. Again, I think it's a really helpful practical framework because as you've said, not all worries are created equal and they have different elements of, yes, I can solve this and yes, I can think about this and then at some point I will deal with it. And the worry curfew that underpins all that is very helpful too because you could end up in a situation where you're brain dumping these worries into this note on your phone and by regularly checking that and reviewing it and not doing anything about it, you're just never going to deal with it. Whereas if you've got a set period where you say, at 7.30, once my, once, once my daughter's in bed, I will review this and I will decipher whether this is something I can solve or whether this is something that is ridiculous or whether this is something that, okay, that can stay in the background and I appreciate that is something that I have a right to be a little bit nervous about and I can maybe deal with it at a future point. I think it's so, so healthy to divide it up in that particular way. And like you say, there are certain things that you can solve quite quickly and you can turn into a problem to solve. And there's certain things that it's just your your your, your self-talk having a, having a bit of an overdrive moment. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was there's uh, a lot of talk at the moment of a cost of living crisis and rising costs and people being unable to, to pay for things. What relationship do you see between financial well-being and mental well-being? So uh, huge. And I think often what we can find is, you know, referencing kind of your early point around the things that you know, sort of during the pandemic that almost that you kind of were removed from because you couldn't just step out your door and to go to the gym or to go and meet your friends for a drink or go for food. And I think what we're finding now is obviously people are prioritizing the absolute essentials. So the absolute essentials being a roof over their head, you know, paying off those energy bills, keeping the house warm, keeping families warm, keeping their children fed, um, which are absolute paramounts. But I think what we're finding is people are then sort of sacrificing um, the, the stuff that maybe they, you know, did like the gym membership, like you know going out for food once a week but the things that are equally as important to for their mental health so i think when i've seen sort of young people and families coming into clinic i'm, I'm certainly seeing that actually they're having to forgo the stuff that actually helped the young person kept them motivated kept them you know sort of afloat really um in in favor of the stuff that is an absolute essential um so i think it's thinking about kind of if say, you know, the gym membership is really important to you or think about actually on a basic level, what is it? It's movement, it's exercise. And actually thinking about ways that you can incorporate that into your day-to-day -day that mean that you're not forking out however much or kind of reviewing local options and thinking, okay, I'm paying X amount for this, but I can get a, a fraction of cost if I do it as a pay-as-you-go gym membership. So I think try, if you are someone that is struggling and you're thinking, actually, I've had to forego quite a lot, it, it's thinking about kind of what alternative, what on a, on a sort of fundamental level, what is it that that opportunity provides you with? Um, and I think for a lot of, again, young people and families I see, what they've ended up realising is that like, going out for food, they, they used to love going out for food with other families and that was a really good social occasion. But rather than each family coughing up X amount for a meal out, okay, well, why don't we just kind of rotate around and do almost a come dine with me at each other's houses? And we get the same kind of um, benefits in terms of the social connection, enjoyment over food, you know, kids kind of interacting with peers their own age, but with a fraction of a cost. So coming back to your question, I think there is a massive, massive link. And I think what I what I do struggle with is is the fact that it 
there's, there's no let up, you know, and actually I, I feel that a lot of the young people I see um, in clinic um, are kind of suffering as a result of decisions that their parents are forced to make in the current climate. Yeah, completely on board with that, Sarah. And I think, as you've said, you've explained the different things that might get cut first in order to tick the essential boxes. And those things are the things that give us joy, fulfillment, connection, purpose, whatever phrases we want to use. So as you say, there's a massive overlap in that. And like you say, particularly the young people that you maybe see on on, on a daily basis, they have much less impact on maybe how much their family earns, how much their family spends on different things, and it puts them in a much more vulnerable position. But hopefully some of the suggestions you've put forward and you'll be putting forward on a daily basis to the people you see, uh, give them some element of um, control in terms of I can be a little bit creative, albeit this is a lower cost option, but it allows me to fulfill the same desires to some extent and the same and get the same benefits from that. But it, like you say, like in, in a time of recession, austerity and all the different pain that we're going through, people have to really think outside the box. And albeit it's not something we want everyone to do, it's something that people maybe have to do at this, at, at this moment in time as well. One of the things I'm always interested to ask professionals about is particularly in this space, when maybe you're taking on board quite a lot of this what we maybe describe as quite heavy uh, emotional uh, baggage to some extent what do you do as a professional to manage your own well-being when all this is maybe coming on top of you so i've um i've been on social media now for seven years and actually over the last few months i'm not one of these people that has to announce that i'm taking time off social media i just take the time off social media <laughs> so um i just took a step back from social media and um you know, I do occasionally do stuff like this, but I was finding kind of often showing up on social media when my day-to-day job is incredibly challenging emotionally um, was taking its toll. So actually it was about kind of prioritizing that whilst my social media platform is important and while showing, sharing daily mental wellbeing tips is important, for me in that moment actually the urgency came in making sure that I was looking after myself and you know all the things that I've spoken about I do to a degree practice I mean the exercise for me is absolutely absolutely key so you know I've exercised regularly for the last 20 years it's something that I enjoy doing you know and, and when the pandemic came about and suddenly the gym membership kind of had to be frozen I had to look at new ways and actually it's it's interesting I've not gone back to the gym I've not renewed my membership because actually for me I found another way to do it at home that means that I'm not spending as much but I'm still getting that daily movement every day and even when you know myself and my husband have to kind of prioritize that because for both of us exercise is hugely important um so we know that actually if one of us is a bit grumpy and haven't done their workout it's like okay you just go you you have to do your workout get some time for yourself so exercise first and foremost um minimizing my time on social media because i can get pulled into that procrastination and you know before you know it you've you've built away hours and and kind of again getting caught up in that comparison of what people are doing um online um can can be really unhelpful I make sure that I have some form of social connection each week I make sure I get outside outdoors so I really struggle in the winter months um because I'm commuting to and from work in the dark and we know that actually daylight is really important for resetting our body's natural wake cycle so wherever possible like you know after we finish recording I will just go outside and just stand outside for a bit and go for a little bit of a stroll um because I know again that's going to be really helpful for me so I think certainly exercise social connection some form of daylight um and and being really diligent with my screen use as well yeah absolutely I think one of the biggest contributions that Andrew Huberman's made to the mental health space is that the the mind often follows the body and I think a lot of what we've spoken about today is things that you're doing with your body or doing with your your hands and your inputs that are enabling your mind to be at its best possible self as well when it comes to exercise daylight social connection all those are things that you have to physically do and it quite often overlaps massively into into how your head is yeah and you know I think you know I'm a professional but sometimes I don't always get it right you know sometimes there are times when I will be spending too much time on my screen but it's just about kind of 
making sure I give myself moments to kind of reflect and think, okay, this is how I'm feeling. Why might that be? And thinking about what's within my control and what I can manage. Yeah. And last question for you, Sarah, before I ask where people can, can connect with you. With this level of expertise and like you say, the things that you've, you've, you've worked on really hard, what's something that you still feel that you're constantly learning and working on up until this point? I think it's it probably comes back to your just the question that you've asked me before, which is around learning to switch off because you know some one of the things that you know I'd be an absolute robot to to do what I do and not be affected on some level um because the stories that I hear are incredibly heartrending, incredibly traumatic, and you know whilst in that moment I'm absolutely empathic professional you know when I walk away from that clinic space, it, it can be difficult to kind of separate out what you've experienced in the work environment and, and avoid it seeping into your professional time. Because I do worry about the people that I see outside of seeing them. I think there's this conception that you kind of see them, that's it, they're out of your mind. But some of the stories that these um, patients have to tell are just, you know, incredibly moving and incredibly challenging. So I think I am learning kind of that boundary that making sure that I do the stuff that I know that's going to help kind of even things out a little bit. And one of the things that I, what's really helpful is I don't live and work in the same place. So I actually work about 40 minutes from where I live. And you've mentioned podcasts. I love podcasts. So one of the things I do as soon as I leave clinic and en route to picking up my daughter from school, I put in a podcast and for that half an hour drive back to go and pick her up, I, I almost feel like I'm leaving the clinic room space behind and kind of immersing myself in a positive conversation on a podcast that means that as soon as I pick her up, I'm kind of right, I'm in mum mode now. And um, not to say that those stories don't still affect me, but it's about finding ways to make sure that when I'm picking her up, I'm not fraught from what I've learned in, in the clinic space. The term that strikes me there is state change. So you're creating a change of state and switching between the different roles and the different hats that you wear as a as a professional as a mother as a family member and then as Sarah yourself yeah absolutely well Sarah I have absolutely loved this conversation I've had so much fun and I'm glad that we managed to make it happen where should people head towards if they want to continue the conversation with you thank you Colin me too I'm, I'm glad we could make this work so people can find me on Instagram at the mind medic um, I've also got a book out it's called the mind medic um, and you can get that from all the bookshops Fantastic, Sarah. That'll be linked in the show notes below. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you to you, the listener. And I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very 